Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. I am Charlotte Casaragi and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a film critic and writer and today I'm going to be talking to Ian Nathan. Ian has written a number of books, including The Alien Vault, a book on uh, Ridley Scott, and just frankly, too many to mention. The book we're going to be looking at today, and the, the reason I'm talking to him today, is because he wrote the definitive account of the making of Lord of the Rings, and uh, which also serves as a kind of biography of Peter Jackson as well. Um, there's several reasons for doing this. There's the anniversary of Lord of the Rings, of Fellowship of the Ring uh, coming up. There is also a new Peter Jackson uh, documentary miniseries on Disney+, Plus, which has uh, just come out. Ridley Scott, of course, has two films in cinemas relatively close together, The House of Gucci and The Last Duel. So we're going to be talking about loads of those things. It's a pretty long conversation, and I've put it as a sort of, I'm putting it out as a kind of bonus episode. Ian is, is great to talk to. I think he's one of those people who um, I could I could watch it, I could listen to him for hours, you know, and so, we, which we don't do, I hasten to add. I mean, it's a long conversation, it's not that long. If you enjoy the conversation, please remember to like, spread the word, publicize the podcast, print t-shirts off, wear them at popular sporting events, do embarrassing things, get viral videos going, skywrite with biplanes. Uh, do what you can. If you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at drjonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Radio um, 
reviews of, you know, week by week. And I was getting a bit frustrated. Radio's fine. But mm. you come away thinking, I've not said anything. I've sort of just top-lined everything. And you, Ridley Scott, looks very pretty, controversial subject. So I wanted to get into just, you know, I had other views on it I just wanted to express. And that's why I kind of started just doing the, the Substack. I don't know how often I'll keep it up because it takes quite a lot of work. Um, but obviously, I wanted to write about Ridley's new film because I've written a book about Ridley and I'm very passionate about Ridley. And so every time he puts a film out, um, I kind of engage. And as I, you said, I, I thought, on one level, I was really impressed and I really liked it. And I think we, we're so casual about how hard it is to mount that kind of film on that kind of level with that kind of authenticity. And to do it at the age of 83 as if it was nothing, you know, okay, medieval France, kings, dueling, all of these things, castles, really just does it without almost blinking. And in the middle of a pandemic as well, they had to shut down that production and then restart it again months and months later. That to me was phenomenal. As, as a film, uh, I, I liked it a lot, and I had, but I had certain reservations. Um, what I liked actually was the Rashomon element to it. Mm. The, the three stories are testimonies to one court case. It's a courtroom drama, really, at heart, although there's all the paraphernalia of the medieval. And, but it's about the case and, and how it represents. And I thought the modern points it wants to uh, sort of infer about Me Too and the current world were more... Um, tellingly made i think in the two male stories carousian and Legree, because you know they were so stupid and they were so arrogant and even with Legree especially and i thought driver was absolutely terrific in the film because he wouldn't even consider it rape he, he wouldn't even because the, the society works in such a way that he could do what he liked and it was as much a sexual thing as you know, a power thing over carousian to sort of work his way upwards with the wonderful Ben Ben's, um, Ben Affleck, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the, the liege lord they, they respond to. And I thought that was the kind of telling point, you know, that Scott was kind of making the reflection of society now and society then may not be that different. You know, those, you know, we see that as barbaric actually what has changed. And I thought that was very powerfully done, that kind of elusiveness and the way those two characters work. I thought Jodie Comer was great in it, but I thought as soon as it becomes her testimony is the truth, and it tells us that, you know, like, you know mm. the caption hangs on to the word truth and lets us get grasped that, rather than let us feel that through her testimony as if she were in court, it, it kind of like, it became didactic to me. It started to tell me things rather than let me feel them and understand them, and just lost me a bit. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I started mm. to look forward to the jewel to come. I started to, you know, just wanted that stuff, and it just doesn't mean to sort of um, downplay her performance because she was magnetic in it, and in each of the kind of segments. But um, that idea of repeating things from different points of view started to wear a bit thin by the third one. But um, I don't know what, yeah. what did you think about that? No, I I, I really I really really rated it. I really uh, and I'm I'm really sort of disappointed with the uh, critical and the uh, sort of commercially it's flopped. Critically, it's kind of been very meh. And there's a lot of sort of cheap shots about the mullets. And you know, I get it. Yeah, they're wearing mullets. They're wearing. But what, you know, what are you going to do? What you know? What what do you what do you do with that sort of stuff? It just seems seems. Uh, I think it seems like they the they they're more against sort of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck appearing yeah. in, a, in a period piece you know they, they don't just don't don't want to even engage in it whereas I thought they were both brilliant and I thought they were both kind of brave performances I mean Matt Damon plays yeah. someone who is increasingly a shit you know and is yeah. it, and 
his heroism that he sets up at the beginning is totally deconstructed by the by the you know halfway through really and certainly by the end by the end he's quite a deplorable character the driver I, I agree was brilliant ben affleck i mean tom Schoen, we were taught had a discussion on a, an episode yeah. earlier and, and he said called it one of his his greatest pleasures of 2021 was watching ben affleck and how funny it was and i i would be yeah i i definitely i definitely agree with that affleck is so re- rarely credited for being so good at pompous I don't even remember Shakespeare in Love, you know, which is quite an odious film in many ways, but Ben Affleck is just fantastic in that film. As the kind of A-list, you know, Shakespearean actor who kind of waltzes in going, what is the play and what is my part? And he just lifts the spirit of the film, gives it something. And he does the same in The Last Jewel. When you start to worry, it's going to be grim and serious the whole way through. As soon as he comes on screen, and the withering looks he gives Matt Damon, uh, you know, they are ironic and then they are a little bit meta, but it's it's a great pleasure, you know, as Tom said, yeah. just to take part in that and join in. And he sort of lifts the burden of the film a bit and says, Well, we can we can laugh at you know these ludicrous men and the world around them. And I love the I don't know who she is, who plays his silent wife who just has this kind of trade in, in kind of wit glances toward her husband of utter hatred. You know, you know this, this is a dead marriage that he did. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those touches in a way, yeah, I thought Scott was much more, you know, he, he said a lot more with those kind of little incidental details than he did with the kind of hammer hope blow of the main point. Yeah, he, he, sometimes we, we forget, and I think he forgets a bit, that the subtle gesture, the, the, the storytelling, actually could be a much you know greater vessel for message making than just saying it to the audience it it reminds me a little bit of stephen king's novels uh, this, okay s- stay with me here because this is yeah, okay. this is a stretch there's always a moment in every stephen king novel or more or less everyone where you have the setup and it's great and you have the the, the middle bit where it, there's a build up of stuff and that's really good and then you always have a scene where like the main goody characters kind of come together usually in a kitchen and someone brings beer and they and they discuss. So you're saying this is a, a, a and they all have to sort of believe in the supernatural at this point and be convinced. Yeah. And then and then they become the gang which is going to you know save the world or do what, whatever they have to do. And at that point, I always kind of lose interest because it's just like he's not very good at writing good people. You know, he's not. Yeah. You know, he's good with wickedness and evil. And I I did get that with the Jodie Comer part of the part of the film where she, uh, she would be she didn't need to be that good you know yeah. it, it was almost like the, the point of me too isn't that you know good girls are being it's that any girl is being yeah, yeah. mistreated and so you know the fact that she's like a forward thinker and she reads books and she's got this forward thinking about agriculture you know i just found some of those those were the worst scenes were when she, when she sort of says to the you know the peasant you know yeah. you do what you you let the horses run around and it's just like oh really animal husbandry is the moral indicator of of who yeah, i should like yeah. that that bit i i agree with you i think that was the weakest bit uh and that's and it is a pedantic point i think to make uh when the accomplishment is otherwise so complete yeah. you know and and that last duel, yeah, it lives yeah. up to its title. It really delivers. Absolutely, and it's so quick. I mean, and, and Scott would have you know read the histories. He would have the historians in, and they would have you know, known this is how that they worked. 
but this that that idea of weight is fantastic armor is just hideous they're like sort of drunk bears just trying to move to get to one another it's kind of like it's unbearably exhausting to, to George. it's not glamorous or exciting it, it's just hard i think and he really gets that across and i mean even the line that coma says of um you know uh it's two old men. I'm waiting for. I need all those little. I love the little. But we've got those little sort of memories of battle. Yeah, it's it's just, and it's 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 and it's the stupidity of it all in the end. You know, machismo. And here they are. They're literally knocking chunks out of each other. You know, for the sake of you know their own position in court or their own dignity, their own pride, and they condemn themselves. That's what the, the film does very powerfully. It's how the men condemn themselves in our eyes as the audience. And they don't know it because they're medieval men. They're just doing what they do in medieval society. But we can see it. And that's the powerful thing, how it reflects on today. Is then we start to think, God, are we like that, you know, as men, you know, even on whatever level? But are we still processing things in a similar way? We think our position in society is impregnable. And it was for those guys, you know, apart from against each other. And that becomes interesting. I did, I did like as well the, the kind of little credit, the little kind of stings at the end, you know, that Carouge, you know, he wins the duel, but two years later he's dead. You know? Yeah, that's in the medieval world, and she'd never married again. I thought that was quite funny. You know, <laughs> I love the king as well, <laughs> the little boy king. Oh yes, oh he, Alex Loyla, is it Alex Loyla? And yeah, he's he just it's the whole thing's a game, and it's delightful. Oh, they're going to duel, and he's all really excited about <laughs> yeah. it. And even his his young queen, she starts to get annoyed with him because he says men dueling. Yeah, some of it isn't that subtle, and Ridley, you know, sometimes can be quite unsubtle with things, but he's still, you know, no one else is making films with that kind of ambition and scale and, you know, stardom. And mm. for Fox, well, Disney to kind of throw it away a bit, I don't think they knew what to do with it. And maybe we are in a bit of a post COVID world where you've got to be a big sensational thing for people to come out to cinemas. And maybe with House of Gucci coming down the line, even Ridley's people couldn't, you know, muster the energy to, to put it in place. But um, I hope it gets rediscovered and put amongst, you know, his great medieval films, which tend to grow on you over time. Where would you put it in his sort of filmography, Where, in terms of your, like, personal pantheon? <laughs> My personal pantheon? I don't know. I mean, it's, to me, it's not, it's not the duelists. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's maybe in terms of the historical ones, it's, I mean, it's less of an epic than you think, because it's, it's quite an intimate story, it, it, even though it's his, you know, historical France and, and you know, we get the landscapes and we get the, the kind of castles, but it's, it, it's not Kingdom of Heaven, which sort of takes on the Crusades and, uh, or 1492, which does Columbus you know, and in a similar time frame actually, it's amazing that Columbus was just around the corner, mm. um, you know, crossing the world and, and, and trying to see the future. Um, so I put it lower, I put it, it mid-tier. It's, and again, I don't want to take, ever take Ridley for granted, and I think too many people do. And there's too many, as you said, there's all these kind of reviews that were, it's kind of, oh, Ridley doing medieval things again, how tiresome. And you think, well, what is it you want from films? You know, what, what do you think they should be doing, taking us to another world and making points and great performances? But um, in terms of my own personal pantheon, maybe sort of, I know, 10th or 11th, somewhere mm. mid-tier, mid but I've only seen it once. And I do, I do want to go back and look, because I'm sure there's nuance I'll pick up again. Yeah, I saw it twice, and because uh, I took my daughter to see it, actually. Yeah. 
and she loved it. She thought it was great. I mean, she's 17 years old. Right. So she's, right. you know, she's, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know. She's coming at it quite, quite fresh, I think. But what I, I mean, my, my view, my feeling for it was, I thought it was his best film since, probably since Gladiator or even since Thelma and Louise. I was really, uh, nice. I, I think I was, I, I felt it was that big for me that it was, uh, you know, maybe it would, Maybe you know if I rewatch some other films, it, it, Kingdom of Heaven, for instance. I, I I've only watched the director's cut once, and maybe right. I need to watch that again. But I, I, my problem with Kingdom of Heaven is just that vacancy in the in the star role. You know, yeah, just, yeah, no, wonderful film. Which is it's a, it's the Honor Majesty's Secret Service of Ridley's films. Yeah, it's too true. It's, yeah, and it's it's everything about it's right apart from the, the leading man. I do love The Martian. I don't know if you said when the last time we saw The Martian. Yeah. It's, it's a rare sighting of Ridley being fun. And Damon is very good at that you know, temperature. It's why he's so good in Last Jewel, because he works so against his normal persona. But he's he's very good in The Martian, all those director-camera things. And it's, it's, Yeah, it's I think The, the Martian... Yeah, it sort of struck me as almost too facile. And I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily, yeah. but it's almost like it didn't... I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. But it was almost like it was, it was a film which was taking on some of the sort of energy and, and rhythms of like yeah. reality tv you know like there's a bit where they build something and they do it in sort of speeded up time and you think god yeah. like, you'd see that on like a, a decorating program or something where <laughs> <laughs> and the other one I, I do really like in recent times is all the money in the world which right. is a great film about wealth i think we were talking about this last time you know sure. wealth and class and a great christopher Plummer performance and michelle williams i just think is impeccable in that film mm. and you know, this battle of wills between a mother and, and a grandfather who, you know he's just curdled with his wealth have you, have you seen house of gucci uh, not yet, yet. not right. yet I'm, I'm gonna see it at the beginning of next week i think and because i was thinking I read, that I, yeah that looks like a similar sort of area you know of yes italy and wealthy sort of uh, misbehavior it seemed that the critical response coming out of the premiere was was strange. It seemed to be people loving it for its its madness and its chaos. And I couldn't work out whether they some reviews loved it or hated it. They kind of it's, it seems to be an all over the place kind of film. But he he said it's a soap opera. Yeah, it's, it's kind of and he wants that that feel to it, which is going to be new for him. A kind of people picture and sort of butting heads and yeah. uh, there's a lot of discussion about Lady Gaga's accent, isn't there? I think someone said it sounded more Russian than Italian, but uh, I, I'm up for it. If it makes me laugh, uh, yeah, I'm very up for it. What was your take on the counselor? Because that's uh, I've, I've heard that name checked as uh, as one of the films. It sort of is is in that area. Yeah. You know? It's it's a film I struggle with. I mean, I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan, and mm. obviously a big Ridley fan. And the news that they were working together, you know, sounded great. And we'd had no country for old men, and it seemed to be an ideally placed proposition is screenplay by Cormac McCarthy but sometimes there's you know, the two things don't quite fit together as much as you think they will and I don't know I struggle with it and it's got a great reputation it's one of those those films that a large pocket of film critics really say defend and say it's a dark dark comedies like the devil it's about nature of evil and you, you've got to look at it on certain levels but I struggle to love it it's, mm. it's, it's a um, and I struggle to laugh at it as well. If it is a comedy, and Scott says it's a comedy, 
the, the whole kind of mad stuff with Cameron Diaz and Javier Bardem, you know, this kind of the almost sort of like footballers' wives stuff. Mm. It's, it's kind of quite mad. And I've watched it twice, and, and I do I do like things about it. At the same time, I struggle with it because I, I could see they shot bits in London, pretending they're Texas, and I, I can see that. You know, it's Hoxton Bar and Grill. I've been there. You know, that annoys <laughs> me, which is not a thing you should judge a film for because they all cheat. Um, but its its grimness is almost overpowering at times, and, and yeah. by the end, they, you know, when uh, it's uh, Ruben Neves or whoever who gives the I can't remember the, the actor um, at the end who gives the big speech to Fassbender about evil and he's kind of Satan, and he's just and the kind of the absurdity it gets to of, of watching that a DVD of of your fiance meeting a terrible terrible fate just seemed slightly ridiculous to me. It got to mm. a point where this is no longer a film I can quite believe in. Mm, yeah, no, I, I, I have similar feelings. And I, it, I think it's funny, that idea as well, that you sometimes have too perfect a marriage of people. Yeah. It's like, like yeah. David Cronenberg did The Naked Lunch. It's like, eh, you know, yeah. or, or, or David Cronenberg doing Ballard. I, you know, I just sort of think you're almost too, your sensibilities are too attuned. You sort of cancel each other out, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I'd rather have seen Ridley's Blood Meridian. You know, he was planning to do mm -hmm. Blood Meridian. But Blood Meridian has very little redeeming qualities in terms of morality in it. It's an extraordinary you know, snapshot of, of the Old West as this kind of place of, of biblical violence. But I think he, he, he grew shy of it because you're just going to beat people up by showing them that relentless amount of you know, violence, brutality, and you know, the the darkest places mankind can go to. Yeah. You're like, oh yes, two tickets for Saturday night, please. You know, I think he realised that might be too much. But I would love to have seen it. So yeah. he'd gone to that place with that the eye, the Ridley eye on the Cormac McCarthy Old West. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And really Peck and Par country as well, because it's sort yeah. of crossing the border to Mexico and back again all the time. You know. Um, so let's get on to yes. let's get on to Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings as well. Uh, it seems like a, I, I'm trying to. I was struggling to think of a segue, but I just completely <laughs> failed. Well, epic to to the epic, I suppose. And I've had I've had discussions about Ridley Scott with with, with Jackson. Oh, um, what's his? What does Jack, he think? Well, he's, I mean, Jackson, of course, he's a consummate geek about all things, and he's he, yeah, he's got this huge movie collection of like memorabilia, and, and literally is the props and costumes. It's incredible. I, I've wandered around it a couple of times, and he's got like all the original costumes from the. Um, the sound of music he's got, he's got all the original makeup from planet of the apes he bids for it this stuff it's like what happens if you know the geek becomes a billionaire what can he spend <laughs> his money no he doesn't collect action figures he collects the original figures from the movies you know the original <laughs> thunderbirds he's just got all this stuff um but he has the uh, the derelict the first the original model model built by giga and his team of the derelict an alien and I, I'd written about Alien at that time when we were talking. I said, I talked about my book. And he goes, come and see the derelict. Yeah, I've got the derelict. It's only Peter Jackson would say that. Jesus. They, they opened up this giant crate and there's the, the derelict looking a little derelict. In fact, he, he, I gave him a copy of my book. I sent it to him because he wanted to see pictures of how the derelict so they could mend it. And then he, he, he was quite funny. And like most people, I think his take on Ridley was he loves Blade Runner and, and, and Alien and, and Gladiator. And I think I spoke to him shortly after Alien Covenant because and scott had said he'd shot at milford sound you know because he'd heard it was unreachable and untouchable mm. he said not even jackson could shoot there 
And I, I said this to Jackson Ridley said you couldn't shoot. He says, oh, I could shoot there if I wanted to shoot there. So we just didn't want to because it's too much of a tourist attraction. Everyone <laughs> would have known it's Milford Sound. He was a bit of kind of defensive about it. They don't get, you know, don't come to New Zealand and tell me where I can't shoot Ridley Scott. <laughs> he was laughing about it. Right. And he's a great admirer of Scott's, of course. But it was just funny. There was a little bit of sort of directorial rivalry. Scott wanted to score points over Jackson. And yeah, yeah Jackson wasn't having it. But he's got such a there's he's got such a sort of unique journey, Jackson, into into making movies. He doesn't see I think it's a, a lot of it and I think you emphasize emphasize this, sorry, in the book, um, that it's his geographical location, you know, it's just the fact they're so isolated and they're so yeah. Uh, but he just has to make it up himself, and that becomes his sort of modus operandi right the way through. Absolutely, and this was something I, I was endeavouring to capture because they all talk about it, and it's not just Jackson. It, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a New Zealand thing. They live at the end of the world, and they said sort of as the country develops, if their machinery broke down, it would take them six months to get replacement parts because they're too far from anywhere. So they had to fix things without knowing how. Mm. And it became you known as this number eight wire was the saying they had for it. Number eight wire was a kind of fencing wire that was used to fix anything. You know, your combine harvester broke down. You've got number eight wire out and sort of put it together and you coped. And this was how they got by and how they actually achieved. And it became the joke that they actually made Lord of the Rings using number eight wire. They just figured out a way of doing it miles away from anywhere else. But it's so true, as you say, of, of how Jackson became a filmmaker. He lived in you know, a small seaside town in, in New Zealand, miles from anywhere. They got films six months, eight months, a year later before anyone else. And he was a movie obsessive who wanted to be a filmmaker. But there's no film school to go to. There's no, there's no chance of flying to L.A. and going to the, the big universities there. That wasn't on the cards. So he sort of had to make it up the New Zealand way. And... Obviously, that you know, as, as most people know, this is a great story of sort of shooting short films using you know, his mother's oven to grow special effects and cutting up her first stall, sort of, kind of collar still to make his King Kong. And, and he did it. He, he figured all these things out. There, there's, apparently, there's a, he was trying to do a stop motion battle at one point between him, dressed as a, a kind of Sinbad-like character, and a skeleton. He was trying to figure all this out. And Ray, he obviously adored Ray Harryhausen. And he only filmed him fighting the invisible thing because he fell over in the surf and smashed his leg open and had to stop filming from there on. And that was his first attempt at a fantasy movie. He sort of <laughs> you know, was wary of them after that because it was kind of a lethal thing to be doing. But you come to, to Bad Taste, which is obviously the first Jackson film. And you know, Lord of the Rings was a breeze compared to Bad Taste. It took them four years to, to finish Bad Taste, shooting at weekends, literally homemade stuff he made uh, a homemade um steady camp he sort of invented it out of wood he built cranes out of wood himself he used his own car for shots and gradually the, he got bits more and more money as it went along with bad taste and you can see him sort of hire other people and production values start to creep up in the film <laughs> even though it's, it's, it's incredibly kind of hand-to-mouth is it not, not that far yeah, yeah not that far but it's a kind of improvement where he gets the house that launches into space and in fact, it's when Fran Walsh comes along, you become his partner. But you know, she was there then helping at that point. But four years and the kind of the mindset, I think, to have, I'm going to do this. I'm going to finish this. He always tells that really lovely story about the lowest point he's ever been was making bad taste. 
and he'd gone out some location near, near where he lived, quite a kind of um, rugged location on, on the edge of a cliff. And his friends didn't show up. You know, and oh, they, yes. they, they got to play football they, and they'd never shown up. And he cried and he, he said, and I think it's about, he was, so, he was so in the moment of making this film and it was so important to him that he realized it was breaking his heart a little bit. And he almost had to, to rationalize himself and steal himself. And you think, I like to think that moment gave him the strength to, to get all the way to the Oscars in a way. It gave him the strength to get through Lord of the Rings and you know, all the hurdles he had to overcome. Just sort of coming to terms with what filmmaking is going to be for him. But always being that personal, I think. He's never lost the, the passion. It, 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 there are so many hurdles. I mean, it's so there's there are so many that in terms of the rights, in terms of the the various producers and the, the you know Weinstein getting involved and being you know he could have been a, an enemy that sunk it completely. You know, yeah. um, so there's just so much serendipity in it. In it, you know, even like uh, getting to the starting, and even when he yeah. gets to the start. The, the the whole thing about them having to recast Aragorn like yeah. within within week oh, yeah you know, it's the week they're filming and they're they're right okay who who do we need you know yeah it's it's a fantastic I, one of the strange things setting out to write the book was you know one of the chief models uh, I was Final Cut um, Stephen Back book on on the, the great disaster of Heaven's Gate right I wanted to write the kind of you know or try and write the inverted version of of of, of Final Cut. It's a story of a triumph over adversity, which is a much harder book in some ways to write because everything goes well you know, after a certain point. It's the Jodie Comer part of the, the last two, Comer, isn't it? Suddenly, like, we're, we're, on, we're on message and it's all... But, but it was that... And he's so good on that, that initial period. In fact, he's much better on getting to the starting line. And once you're talking about the actual filmmaking, he, you know, it all becomes a bit more of a blur to him and sort of day by day. Mm. But that journey from coming out of the Frighteners, and a lot of the motivation was, A, he wanted to do a fantasy film, but he needed to give Weta Digital and Weta Workshop work. He needed right. to employ these people because they were growing concerns. And he was the manager of it. So he needed to feed that, that beast. He'd come out, out of the Frighteners, which hadn't done very well. And then, as you know, King Kong fell over and, and all the things and other possibilities came and went. That they reached this point where one day he and Fran Walsh were having a discussion. I need to do a fantasy film, maybe a fantasy film we can do special effects. It's hilarious. And, and he kept going, I want to do a bit of this. And she went, That's Lord of the Rings. I want to do a bit of this. That's Lord of the Rings. And he said, and he'd read it like 15 years before and he just got really angry. He said, well, what isn't Lord of the Rings? And she said, No, it's all Lord of the Rings. And finally, he said, Well, why don't we do Lord of the Rings? <laughs> and it's as simple as that. You know, and I think he, he was always very clear that he didn't make it as a Tolkien zealot. And that was important because I think you can go wrong. If he'd been the guy who worshipped Lord of the Rings and knew everything there was to know about Tolkien, of which there are many, he would have, I think he would have come a cropper. I think because he was able to stand slightly back and come at it like a filmmaker, that was his success. And they got Philippa Boyens in and she was the Tolkien obsessive. So they had someone on side to be that person. But that journey then, as you say, with, with Weinstein and, and Miramax, because he had a deal with Mir Miramax. And it was just a fascinating glimpse into the hurdles any filmmaker goes through. And you think a simple project. And one of the, the great voices I, I spoke to was a guy called Ken Kamins, who is Jackson's manager. 
I, I met him in, in LA and he's great because he's an LA voice and always right. gives you the LA stories. So Jackson is very New Zealand as you expect and all those things, but Ken Kamins will give you the kind of variety edge on the story, the yeah. business side. And then you start to realize Ken Kamins, you know, made it happen. He's an incredible part of the story. And you know, when when it you know Weinstein threatened to you know destroy the whole project with the the Jackson wouldn't cut it back to a single film and it all related to the fact that Disney couldn't give him enough money to do two films and he was too proud to admit that and so he threw it back at Jackson and said it's all your fault mm. Jackson you know he's just you know, a lovely guy who was kind of rather blasted by by the fury and it's a great story that you know came in spoke to Jackson Jackson said, it's over I'm going back to New Zealand we're going to make small films whatever I can't do this Hollywood thing and came and said, just leave it with me. And he got on the, the phone to, to Harvey and said, you give me a month to sell this thing. And Harvey, you got two weeks and we get all the money back. And it was just, Harvey knew it. It was a deal that couldn't be done. And this miracle is that it got done. And obviously it's a very famous story, the New Line meeting and all those things. And yeah, uh, my, uh, Bob Shea saying, let's make three films, not two. And all that, that stuff has that's been heavily mythologized since. Yeah, and one actually one of the joys of writing the book was taking you know stories that were very well known, yeah, and and Rings has got its own mythology, and trying just to to get to the truth of things. So, who was at that meeting? What happened? When did the green light come? What was the motivation behind New Line? You know, they needed a franchise. They they were trying to do Foundation. That would all fallen apart. All their other films couldn't they couldn't get sequels going for various reasons. So one of the reasons he said, can I have three films, is that New Line needed a franchise. It was a yeah. business. Yeah, they get, that's three years of products they've got lined up, you know. Just, you know, there on a desk in front of him was a franchise that he needed. And suddenly he was thinking, like, this book sold 50 million copies. Maybe there's something in this that, that people knew. And, I, and you mentioned, you know, Aragorn, which is the incredible story of getting Viggo Mortensen at the 11th hour after Stuart Townsend didn't fit and, and what Jackson basically fired him. Mm. And... That was a story I knew I couldn't avoid. But what you try and do is go into it and, and just you know, open it up. And it was an incredible story of phone calls. You know, all these phone calls, you know, he was shooting and there were, there were calls to Michael Desky at New Line and to New Line itself. And lists were made and everybody honed in on Viggo Mortensen and they found him like in Idaho or something. He's right in the middle of nowhere. They finally got him on the phone. And he's just—I uh, don't know if you've interviewed Viggo Mortensen, but he is—you know—he's a very smart man, but he's away with the fairies. Yeah, he, I, he's right. coming from a different zone, a different place. He's a poet warrior. He's—he was perfect for the role. Yeah. Know, they, they soon came to realize, but he doesn't talk straight. So you don't—and it's just this kind of—he's asking these bizarre questions about you know, when was my character born and when did he move in with the elves and does he sing and. And Jackson's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I've got to go and shoot some <laughs> stuff. And, and then they got him on the phone. To, there were three phone calls, not one. There were three different phone calls. And Jackson, you know, he was called away from set for the final one. So look, Vigo needs to talk to you one last time. And Vigo was like, yeah. Um, and Jackson thought he'd lost him. He thought he's gone. And right, right. Uh, I've got to go back to the drawing board. You know, who else is on the list? What are you going to do? And it's kind of strange phone call. And he said, this is what Vigo's like. He doesn't talk. He just leaves gaps. So, well, I'll see you Tuesday then. <laughs> And with that, he goes on a plane and, you know, and history is made. And you're right. I, serendipity played its part so hugely in rings. But there's that old saying that like you make your own luck. And there was something driving that, that whole project that was creating its own luck as it went along. 
Did you did you ever see any footage of the of the Aragorn that never was? That there isn't any actual footage. They never shot a day on set. What there is ah, is right. costume tests. Right. They did the costume test. There were rehearsals with him. I mean, there were two months when the four Hobbit actors had arrived in, in Wellington and Orlando Bloom, I think, had arrived. They all were doing the training and the vocal stuff. And Stuart Townsend was with them then. Mm. And he was part of the gang. They used to obviously all go out and night and, and hang out. They got into the kind of New Zealand social scene. And he was very much part of the team at that point. And it came to it as a real shock to them to find you know, he'd been fired. They, they couldn't believe it. And it was a real wake-up call, I think. Just it had been such a joyous kind of occasion. Everyone, yeah, we're all in this together. And we're in New Zealand. We're young and having such fun. And suddenly, three days into shooting, one of the principal characters has been fired. And they all had a bit like, oh, okay, this is big business, isn't it? We, we can't mess around anymore. There's an element of sort of, it, it also shows that there's some steel beneath the sort of Jackson fluffiness. You know, there's a sort of, uh, you know... The, or he's a, he's like a hobbit and all all that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah. you know, don't underestimate him. If he's if you're not you know up to snuff and he's not happy with the situation and he'll he'll do anything to get to the end result that he wants. Absolutely, he has got an iron core, and you have to. You know, you, you yeah, can't yeah. make three films back to back. You know, with a beloved book, you know, up on mountain tops you know, without that drive. And he was very clear on you know in casting the film. You know, they had their twofold. One, you had to kind of meet the requirements of these roles that everyone knows, you know, who was going to be Frodo, who was going to be Gandalf, these famous parts. That was a, a trial in itself. But he knew that anyone he cast had to be able to be, withstand a production that was going to run 18 months at the very least without going crazy. They were going to be stuck up mountains in the wilds of New Zealand. You know, there was going to be no call for vanity. There was no get my agent on the phone. Where's my trailer? You had to be with them. It's like you're with us or against us. Right. He got that right with everybody, but it seemed like Stuart Townsend, the frequency was wrong. He was too young, I think, for the, for the part. And very quickly, he wasn't communicating with Jackson very well. And I think Jackson said, I can't do 18 months with Aragorn not talking to me. It's, it's mad. He needs somebody. And once they got Vigo in, they had trouble getting Vigo back out of the wild, was, was the tricky bit. <laughs> Snow would be falling and rain, whatever. He goes, no, it's fine. Let's carry on shooting. They're like, no, this is bad weather, Vigo. You know, carrying his sword everywhere he went. They couldn't stop him being Aragorn. <laughs> and, and you couldn't, and you just can't imagine it uh, any other way. Um, I mean, that first movie, I remember going to, I just moved to, to Italy at the time and I went back to Liverpool and I think I saw it uh, while I was, while I was back. I, in fact, I remember, I have a very clear memory yeah. of having your Empire cover story uh, of the preview, the one with Frodo yeah. on the cover and leafing through it and thinking, this looks fucking awful. <laughs> I thought that, that just the Elijah Wood and the ring, it just looked naff. I just, I was just thinking, oh God, what are they going to do with this? And then it, um, and then it, it totally uh, blew me away, that first film. I, just, I was just utterly um, yeah. flabbergasted by it. Um, and I think that's what one of the good things about the book as well is, is that journey of you as, as a sort of like a fan. You're sort of yeah. sitting, watching the films going, God, I hope these are good. <laughs> I'd invested so much into it. You know, not, not just you know, in terms of um, you know, my own hopes and desires. You know, I put Empire right in front of that film and said, you know, we've got to be behind this. And, and Jackson was forever grateful for that. He said, because he, there was such a huge amount of negativity before the, the can presentation. 
it was the laughing stock as you say everyone's like rings and frodo and what is this it was, you know the, it was the new heaven's gate it was definitely what a new line doing it's going to kill the company all of that was landing on, on jackson and we did an early cover with empire and we got hold of some shots because we believed you know this is the new star wars we decided and that was a lot that was you know my fault and i was kind of because i read the books and i, you know, I, I kind of was revisiting my 14 year old self through the, the medium of these films and was not letting go you know it's about you know iron will i had my fingers into those films that no other journalist could get me off it <laughs> and but yeah there was that that terror of like what if he fucks it up what is it it's it's, it's no good but I, i'd seen that the the 25 minutes that were shown in can and i think that that is always seen as the turning point in in the whole endeavor in a way i mean jackson was confident jackson knew what he was doing but there was still a lot to achieve they hadn't done any golem yet then and all sorts of special effects things but it was a Bob Shade decision, the head of New Line. He said, let's, let's change the conversation on this film. And they took this, this 25 minutes to, to Cannes and did a big party and introduced. That's where we did our first story from. That's where I first met Jackson, in fact, Cannes. And it was just strange. There was just, you never know with anything. Um, but as we were waiting outside to the Olympia, I know, I'm sure you know the Olympia in, in Cannes. Sure, yeah, yeah. Many, many you know, war stories I'm sure you have from the Olympia. But it was, we were all sat, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. It was, it was quite an overcast day and we're all kind of there the journalists early and there's probably about 20 of us uh here for the, for the preview and we realized looking amongst us we were excited we were mm. kind of really it was like kind of giddiness like we were children we sensed this was the important thing and you, you don't know and all these things and it took us that they couldn't find the, the keys for the door and we were like kind of zombies just kind of <laughs> scratching at the window <laughs> but, you know finally let us in and just sitting there, you know, waiting for the footage, it, was, it genuinely felt a little bit awe-inspiring. It was kind of exciting. Jackson came out and introduced it and apologised for it, as he always does. You know, yes, he's early, please don't. And it began. And it, what it was, it was, um, it was like a little montage of the beginning bits of Fellowship. Then it's the, it's the cave troll sequence they showed in its entirety, although it wasn't completely finished. And then at the end, there was a montage of all three films. Um, but the first thing you saw is Gandalf, knocking on the door and, and Ian Holm coming out as Bilbo. And for a sort of, I don't know, 10 seconds, your brain goes, this is wrong. The scale's wrong. Everything looks weird. But actually, it's, it's not wrong. It's just it worked. Your brain hadn't kind of caught up with it. And what I started to sense and felt this kind of great relief was the special effects started not to matter because the characters started to take over. And you started to think, God, that's a brilliant portrayal of Bilbo. He's got it. And then McKellen was just so effortless. You started to just to go not worry about scale and all those things. And it just eased in. And by the time we were watching the Moria stuff, they were virtually cheering you know, in, the, in the preview. And that night in Cannes, that's only, the only thing anyone talked about. You know, mm. It wasn't, it was no official entry. It was nothing to do with the festival, really. Any bar you were in, did you go to the footage? Did you get to see the footage? Is it as good as they're saying? Right. And and Michael Desky always says, you know, he's very he's a wonderful fellow. He, he was the executive on it for, for New Line. He's quite an emotional fellow. He just said, I, I cried. Relief. Was that the first it, time he'd seen it as well? No, he'd seen bits and pieces because obviously right. he'd been in and out of New Zealand. And and it's, it's, it's going to get interesting stories. It was actually Bob Shea who, who shaped it all, the actual package. Right. And Jackson says, fair play to him. You know, I just wanted to do this bit and uh, he just wanted to do the scene. And Bob Shane, let's give them, let's give them the whole scope of the project. And then that he was right. Bob Shane knew how to market, you know, to speak to, to people. And he said from that point on, it was all about containing 
the, the, the excitement. Then it was about, okay, you know, we're onto something. But it was the point where, you know, more money went to New Zealand to help them kind of do things. Special effects were enlarged, where to digital become a much more of a going concern. That was kind of the, the breaking of the dam. And it shifted from, you know, the grand folly into the new Star Wars. I, I mean, I, I, my, I was thinking about this really recently, um, about how I have a tendency to sort of really, really like things and then kind of go off them for a while. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was so into Lord of the Rings. I mean, I watched them all at the cinema, obviously. I bought the DVDs the minute they were out. I bought the extended versions the minute they were out. I listened to the commentaries. I watched the hours and hours of material. And then at a certain point, I sort of started to slightly disparage yeah. them and sort of go, well, you know, the first one's brilliant, but the others, you know, aren't that good. And I'm not, you know, there's this and there's that and it never ends and it goes on for, for ages. <laughs> and I, I really feel that I, I, they deserve a rewatch now because I feel like I've got over my sort of pretending I don't like yeah. Pink Floyd and I need to go back and listen to it and go, oh no, actually I really do like this. This is, you know, I, it's not cool to like it, but I love it, you know. I mean, honestly, try writing a book on them. You, you have to kind of unstitch the whole making of them and the amount of times I rewatch them to the point where you start to see, as you say, you start to see the cracks. And, and you've, when you've kind of you've gone down to the minutiae, you can almost see you know, Jackson's hand coming around the side and prodding people. You can, and yeah, I, I, have, I have not, I've not, I, after I finished the book, I said, I'm going to leave it for about two or three years. I'm, I've got to get, make a break from you know, Middle Earth and, and that world and go and do other things because it, they, they were spoiling for me, uh, spoiling the, the films. But I did, I got the, the 4K versions and I watched the first half of Fellowship in 4K. This is, yeah, because I got a new telly and I want you to see what it looked like on my, on my new telly. And it was great to sort of get back into it again. And you reminded what a great character piece it is. You know, all the special effects. And especially some of them are dated a little bit and other things, but it's a great character piece. And, you know, it's the best thing Orlando Bloom's ever done. You know, he's very funny in it, Orlando Bloom, the kind of looks he gives. I mean, Mortensen's just impeccable. But you get the scenes of Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen battling. And they're going, yeah, yeah, this stuff is good stuff. It's richness in it. And I remember thinking how much, especially of that first one, how much of a mix of genres it was. There was a feeling of real sort of like, even the very beginning felt like a hammer horror, that sort of like, there is a darkness in the, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. mountains and all this sort of stuff. And then you'd have like a Western where, uh, you know, Frodo's being rescued by Liv Tyler and, the, you know, a really great horse race. You know, it's yeah, a yeah. really, you know, it's sort of thundering horse race. And then, yeah, the Saruman... Uh, Gandalf fight was like a kung fu. It was like something from you know Suhak and Once Upon a Time in China or something. You know, had of or maybe better Chinese ghost story. It just felt like such a mix of stuff. I think that's Jackson a little bit, and Jackson's you know important lack of reverence for Tolkien. You know, he he loved the book and and was I mean you'd have to be incredibly into it to, to make the films. But as I say, he he was he was distant from it and knew that he could shake it up a bit and knew that it needed to be cinematic and fun. It needed to be fun. And he's a great sense of fun, Jackson. So if you've got two wizards battling, you want to show it off a bit and, and have fun with it. And then it's kind of like he, you know, they got these wonderful, the bigotures, the famous huge models they use for all the kind of grand architecture of Middle Earth. And they realized very quickly that there were such good models that they held up to the camera coming very close. Mm. And once that was established, 
Jackson just said, right. And he had his camera just springing across Middle Earth, up and down these, these kind of these buildings, kind of, you know, the vertiginous power of the film is enormous. Let's not just go off, peer off the side of a building. Let's plunge all the way down. And you can see a guy just sort of letting loose. He's created this playground for himself. And just so I'm going to make a Peter Jackson film in Middle Earth, and <laughs> yes. you may not realize it, yeah, because you'll all be obsessed with, you know, is Frodo right, and you know, the ring, and is it telling the story properly? And of course, they had Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens and policing all that side of it. But they had Jackson going, "What we need is energy, mm. otherwise it can become stodgy very quickly." He always said, you know, two things: one, he he needed, you know. The, the brightness of it and the, the acceleration of it, battle scenes and fighting and, and you know, things he loved in films, the Ray Harryhausen stuff, if you want. But he said he also needed, he needed credibility. He said, you are 10 degrees off being, you know, French and Saunders mocking, you know, you, you're right. 10 degrees away from, because the, the language can sound so absurd. But if you've got Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen walking into a scene and delivering it like it's Shakespeare, that's you land you get these anchors that can just reassure you and then hold the film down that allow you then to go off and do potty things and stuff and in two and three i think the great anchor is andy circus dollar mm. which was the biggest risk of the whole trilogy you know if that had gone wrong it just falls apart and because they got that right and it right and that then you know suddenly we had psychological inquiry in the film you, you were looking beneath the surface of characters the idea of the ring and the junkie and all the things they put into it. And that was another thing that just anchored it all and stopped it being silly. And it was silly in so many respects. And all the things you mentioned are true, but it had these things in it that resisted the pull of silliness. Tolkien always called it sillification. He hated the idea of adaptation because he knew whatever it would, there'd be sillification that would come into play. And he loathes Walt Disney and all that because he, fairy tales and lovely castles and unicorns hated all that side of it and i think jackson understands that and i think ridley scott would have been quite envious in some levels that jackson did a bit of the grit and the mud and, and of his world you know the orcs looks they look like they've been in battle you know they look beaten up there's, there's that brilliant scene where they pull i believe it's a whatever they're called the ceremony orcs or hurukai hurukai they, yeah they're, they're pulled out of the mud you know and there's just this <laughs> sort of sliminess to them that is a that is excellent you know what i mean i did I, even when i was like in the height of my sort of love for them i did feel there was a kind of as they became more gargantuan there was a kind of law of diminishing returns a little bit into i i remember one part that i um I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure if I'm being snobby in retrospect, <laughs> but it was like when you sort of got some of the jokes, it started to become a bit James Bondy, where it was like, okay, he does this in every film, sort of like the, the yes. cat, the, how many orcs we get to kill and that sort of stuff. But it, it started being like, okay, that's your... The, the Orlando Bloom slide that he has to do yeah. you know, in every film. and I suppose you know, it, it's, it's the difficulty of success is one thing. And they're, they're really interesting projects in the sense that they were all certainly shot at the same time. But there was a great deal of filmmaking going on on Two Towers and Return of the King after The Fellowship of the Ring came out. So they could see how people were responding to it and sort of react accordingly in the moment rather than waiting five years and doing a sequel. So it's quite unique in the respect of here's our box office, here's the reviews, here's the fan response, and here's him sitting in the edit and they're still doing special effects, certainly on two towers. And they were doing some supplementary shooting still on you know in the two the two subsequent films. And they could kind of cut their cloth accordingly without mm. changing what they're about. I mean, they couldn't change the story. But and people loved Bloom and loved Legolas. So Jackson just went, well. You know, let's play to that constituency. Let's play to that. I mean, probably in the Hobbit films, they just go too far with it. Right. But it's sort of, let's do a bit of the musical number. You know, let's do the Gene Kelly routine in the middle of Lord <laughs> of the Rings. And again, you come back to his his sense of fun and his blasphemy. I think he, he wants, to, wants to throw into things and go, well, you know, we've got this huge battle scene, you know, full of orcs all done at night in a pouring rain, kind of Kurosawa style. And they've got all the special effects working in this incredible software called Massive that created thousands of, of troops. And it's like, well, you need something in the middle of it so we can just remember what's going on and orientate. So he just leaves through that, you know, sliding down the, the stairs on, on the shield, which is absurd. It's comic book. Yeah. But I think, it, you know, from Jackson's point of view, the 12 year old kid will go, I love Legolas and I want, you know, more of that Legolas stuff. Whereas, you know, the, the 40 something Tolkien, you know, devotee is like, oh, that's ridiculous. That would never happen in the book. And that, <laughs> but at the same time, the, the Tolkien devotee is going, well, that Gandalf is absolutely spot on. And that Aragorn is exactly as I imagined him. And, you know, Edoras, the, the kind of the, the, the almost Viking like town on the hill, looks absolutely like Edoras did in the, on the pages of the book in your imagination. So all of that was concrete. So I think we gave some latitude to to Jackson to have yeah. fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, how did it how did it work? I mean, you've already sort of referred to this, I think, but this your book came out after like several of the cast members had also had started their own books or had even published them. I think Sean Astin's was out before yours, maybe. Yes, his came first. Um, it, it was a, like like you know, all things in all the other authors you've spoken to, you know, getting a book underway is a slow process. Sure. And the, the origins of the book came about that I was, I was interviewing Jackson. You know, I'd done all this kind of Lord of the Rings coverage. I've been out to New Zealand a few times and I got to know him and he, he's a very nice guy and very into film magazines. So New Empire. Right. He's a geeky guy and, and loved to chat. And I was chatting to him and we're doing some kind of retro, endless retrospectives we were doing on Empire. You know, and I was chatting to him about the, the, the Sean Connery story. And is it true that New Line wanted Sean Connery and did they pitch? And he said, well, I'll tell you that story. And it's a famous story that actually they did. They sent these scripts to, to the Bahamas or you know, wherever he was, to his, his, his wonderful place. And Jackson, you know, they said you could follow the courier. 
you know, they had the reports and they, they knew it had been delivered to, to Mr. Connery, <laughs> the, the scripts and the proposal and the, the deal that New Line had on the table for Connery was phenomenal. You know, the money he would have made out of rings if, he, if he'd only known. And they never heard anything. You know, it was silence and Smaug slumbered on, you know, in, in his kind of mansion in, in the Bahamas. So he told me the whole story and I got the, the truth. And I sat there thinking, I can do this as a book. You know, I can, mm. this is one of those anecdotes that haven't been told, you know, on the endless DVDs. There are, and there are other parts of this whole thing and I can put them down in a book. And I'd already, I was already sitting on this kind of gold mine of material. You know, there's only so much you can get into empire at any one time. There was oodles more, you know, Christopher Lee and, and you know, anyone who's, in, who's ever interviewed Richard Taylor, who's the head of a Weta workshop, every transcription is about 20,000 words long. I mean, he just <laughs> talks and talks. And I was sitting on, you know, 80,000 words of Richard Taylor. So I just thought, and then you know, I, I went to Jackson's people and I said, look, you know, if he doesn't want me to do this, then I, I will back off. You know, I, I owe him a lot for that. And I, I, and they came back and said, no, Pete's interested, but you've got to go through Harper College because of the Tolkien estate and the way the whole thing is set up. So any material he is not officially approved, but given me, needs to be published by HarperCollins. They were the kind of the points of the deal. It goes all the way back to New Line. So I kind of went, oh God, HarperCollins, huge publisher. This is going to be a nightmare. Mm. But I, I went through the processes. There was a Warner publishing arm that put me into HarperCollins. And I just got this guy called Chris Smith at HarperCollins, who sort of out of the blue gave me a call and said that your proposals arrived from, from Warner. Do you want to come in and, and have a chat? And serendipity, is, you mentioned it, Mm. they were exactly the point where all the hobbit films had finished so they weren't publishing any more making of hobbit books you know they're, they're all sort of gone so that next couple of years were kind of tolkien filmmaking free they didn't have anything planned and like all publishers have you know schedules to meet and and things that sort of fill their you know their, you know, their book publishing lists so exactly the moment i pitched they needed a tolkien filmmaking book Right. And, he kind of spoke to and, we, and then you, you do the things where you put chapters together and, and the initial pitch was much more half Lord of the Rings, half Hobbit. And in the writing, it became clear I needed to write about Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit was just a, an after effect, a legacy thing, um, which people have complained about. They all wanted a bitchy book on the Hobbit, but uh, I wasn't writing that <laughs> book. Um, and that's that's when it started to sort of gather steam. And then I, I, my, my dealings became back to Jackson. Jackson said, right, well, come out. And you need to talk to Michael Deskey and Ken Kamins. And, that, and the kind of feelers went out. And the whole thing sort of started underway. And, but I always said the whole way along, um, sort of the top of my, my original pitch was, this is not a book about magic rings and swords and elves and dwarves. It, they are all incidental. It's a book about a gang of Kiwi filmmakers who climbed Everest. Right. And everyone said right. it couldn't be done. That was the theme of the book. It was about how did this happen? And Lord of the Rings had been floating around Hollywood. And I, I did the whole, all the chapters on Borman's attempts. Sure, and yeah. Bakshi's yeah. attempts and the Beatles attempts and all those kind of things. To, and what was the truth of that? That's another thing. It's always get to the truth of, of the myth. But it was like, tell the story of these, these New Zealanders and... Obviously, within that, then it becomes a kind of biography of Jackson's. But that, again, is slightly incidental. It's just the story of how they did it, how they achieved it. And, and it grew, it became quite long in that telling. You, know, you learn the frowns of your publisher's face when you're like, oh, this, Ian, we're not even halfway through the story. And you haven't done Gollum yet. And you haven't done the battles yet. And, and there were these kind of personal things I wanted to throw in, um, my own 
journeys to New Zealand and, and how amazing it was to be there, not just because it was Lord of the Rings, but because also they were so different from America. You, know, you mm. go on set and they welcomed you. They loved you being there. Yeah, if you go on set in LA and it's just like stand here and don't move until we tell you to move, don't look anybody else in the eye, you know, just right. behave yourself, school trip. You end up in, you know, you're on Lord of the Rings and they're just like, right, what are we going to do? Let's, let's show you the workshop. Here are the swords. Do you want to put a helmet on? You, know, you become <laughs> a kid and you walk on and the person goes, Jackson just wanders over to say hello. I mean, directors don't do that. And he goes right, and just right. chats you through what they're going to film. They're doing the first thing I saw them film was Brad Dourif and Christopher Lee. And it's Dourif arriving to tell him bad news. I think it's only in the extended cut. And Brad Dourif's a weird, kind of a weird guy. I don't even spoken to him. He's quite self-conscious guy. In the full kind of worm tongue get up. He's like, you come to see me fail, haven't you? <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm just going to watch the, watch the scene. And he was great in the scene. And I remember it's like Jackson had the new lines written in biro on a cr like crunched up piece of paper in his head. These lines for, for worm tongue, you know, this $300 million production. And the lines are written in biro on a that's it. That's his, no, his number eight wire right there. Isn't number it? eight wire right there. <laughs> and you think, well, that, that's it. Because underneath that, this incredible industry is going on and incredible ingenuity and scale. Everywhere you look, Middle Earth was, was being pulled down or put up. And the, kind of, the sheer volume of it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And what, what about the the Hobbit films afterwards? Because I mean, I I think that actually might have been also something a little, a little bit, yeah. a little bit like the Matrix movies made you the sequels made you like the original Matrix a little bit less because it took away the uniqueness and the freshness of that sort of retrospectively. Um, I sort of had the same feeling about the Hobbit films where it was like, oh, you know, I, the, the first one, whoa, I'm, are we going to be in the kitchen for much longer? You know, are we going to be? I know. Yeah, it, it was It's a, a funny thing because uh, you know, I'd done Lord of the Rings and it had been this kind of great experience for me, you know, both in terms of the satisfaction that had the films done well and the things I got to write and the traveling I got to do. And just as a career thing, it was a, it was a great experience. And then you have that kind of ego thing where the Hobbit films come up. And I've done this kind of magnanimous thing in the Empire office going, I can't do the Hobbit. You know, I've done all of the rings. Give sure. it to somebody else because, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've had my moment in Middle Earth. And I can, you know. But then I get this kind of email through from Warner Brothers saying, Peter's asked for you. Yeah, you know, he wants you to come out early in production. You know, you're, you're good luck charm. He wants you around to start covering it. Right. And you can't resist. You know, I'm showing it to Mark, who's the then editor, and going, you know, I know I've said I'm stepping out, but Peter's asked for me. You know, there's a yeah. plane waiting with, with my name on it. You know, they painted my face on the side of the plane. <laughs> and um, so I, I became the Hobbit guy. And it, yeah, it were good experiences, again, for me, um, in terms of being a journalist. But it, the industry of it was different. The, the, you know, the, the studios have been built up and become much more efficient and Hollywood-like. And it, it, the whole thing ran to a slightly different rhythm. Um, I mean, I, it'd be wrong with me to say I knew the films weren't going to be quite as good as soon as on set. That wasn't apparent. There was lots of wonderful things to see, but it just didn't have quite the same atmosphere. One of the, you know, the fabulous things of um, Rings was you know, catering. And they, they, they ate mm. in this kind of hut, which was a kind of corrugated roof upon which the rain would rattle. And everybody ate, in, you know, no one was in their trailer. And you looked right. across and there was Bernard Hill and Ian McKellen 
with their beards and nets so they didn't dip in their food, <laughs> chatting away in costume. Every orc, you know, was, was going to drink out of cartons because they didn't have time to take their makeup off. So they were sitting catering, sitting around drinking these kind of juice cartons. And it was just this like tableau of a, of a, it's like something out like of Monty Python. It was just wonderful. <laughs> on, a, on a Friday afternoon, they had a, a quartet playing classical music to the cast of Lord of the Rings. It was just like, right. this is the most crazy but wonderful thing. And that wasn't there with, with The Hobbit. The kind mm. of, just, they thought the homemade, you know, the master homemade movie on, on this huge scale, but it didn't feel homemade on The Hobbit. And I, know, I didn't get the sense of things going wrong, but it, I, I think Peter Jackson looked a little bit like he didn't quite know why he was doing it. Right, right. And I think he felt, he, you know, when you talk to him, he, he would be slightly, ne- he, and he can be a bit of a, a negative Nelly. You know, he, mm. It's a Kiwi sensibility thing. You, you kind of, you're humble to the point where you sound like you're just slagging yourself off. And you have to kind of lift them up a bit. And on, <laughs> on The Hobbit, he, he just was like, yeah, and then I was ill, and then Guillermo dropped out. And, you know, it was a tough, you know, and I really just couldn't get going. And, and this was kind of, yeah, you're filming it. You've got to talk a better shot than this. Do you think it was the idea that, because the, the, the myth of sort of Lord of the Rings is the point where they realise it's all going to work is when they divide it into three films. And with The Hobbit, I got the feeling it was like the opposite. The point where it sort of seemed to fall apart was when they decided we're going to do three films. I mean, maybe even two felt like a push to me because it's a relatively, yeah. it's like a linear narrative, you know. Yeah, I think that there's, there were kind of, I think Jackson had his doubts even before he even, you know, started on it. You know, there's a whole sort of post Lord of the Rings period when the Hobbit rights were even more entangled than the Lord of the Rings rights were. And it looked unlikely it was even going to happen. And he'd fallen out with New Line and all these things had gone on. And I think he'd made his peace with moving on. I think he was mm. quite happy to doing whatever future projects he'd set up. And it came back to that thing of he needed to keep people in New Zealand employed. There were now thousands of people who worked at workshop and, and digital and studio people. And they'd all moved families over to, to Wellington on the hope you know, that The Hobbit was about to kick in. And I just thought he, he did have a responsibility than maybe love. And of course, once you're going, he, he was applying his filmmaking craft to that. But there was this tension, I think, with him and the material. He looked at the material and thought, this has got a different tone of voice to Lord of the Rings. And it has. It's, it's a bedtime story, The Hobbit. The, yes. The language of it by Tolkien is, is to his children. And so it's a beloved book because of that. It has this, you know, the narrator's voice is slightly separate from the story. And it's kind of a, a ditty in some ways. And it was intended. It's a children's story. And I think Jackson said, I, I couldn't, you know, I remember early on saying, I found that very hard to come to terms with. What is the tone of this material? And of course, Warner are leaning on him to go, we need Lord of the Rings too. We need more epic. We need more battles. We need all that stuff. That's what we're paying for. You know? And that there was an awful lot more money going into the Hobbits than, mm. than Rings. There was something like 60 million had been spent before Jackson signed on to direct. So, so all through that Guillermo period and all through that, there was $60 million of pre-production had gone into the Hobbit. The wow. drawings and the armor and all that stuff. And it's like it was too much. You know, the, the limits of rings were to its benefit. The number eight thinking had to come out. Once you, you have too much money and you know, freedom, well, although it wasn't quite freedom, but you know, too much uh, power in the sense of being Hollywood, the number eight thinking becomes more distant, I think. So that was a factor. And I think, and again, there are various debates about things. Warner, because who had subsumed New Line in, in the meantime, kind of lent on them a bit. And... Mm lent on them to put the romance in 
lent on them to make it more epic. I think Jackson wanted to do more of a punk rocky kind of the dwarves mucking up the great Lord of the Rings edifice, you know, and just not caring a hoot. He wanted that kind of knockabout bad taste comedy more to the front. And that got kind of pushed to the back. Um, but I, the, the tri trilogy thing was a mistake. I don't think there was enough material, as you say, to, to stretch it out. But I think it was done honestly. And there were a lot of comments made about, oh, it's for the money and all these things. Warner forced him to do it. He, he, Jackson told me, he said, we just sat down one afternoon about what the second film was going to be to map out the drama of the second film. Right. And they kept talking about things they had to pull out and things they hadn't done. And Jackson, one of them, just said, if we did three, we could do that. We could do that. Mm. And, and said, well, let's, let's go to Warner and said, we'll try three. And Warner, of course, went, yes, please. Thank you very much. You know, that's another Christmas sorted for everybody. The bonuses are in the, in the post. And yeah, those films, each one nearly made, a, a, I think the first one made a billion dollars, second and third one made about $900 million each. And that's, that's Marvel money, you know. So from a Warner point of view, you know, from a yeah. commercial point of view, an absolute triumph, you know. Yeah, be all right. They, they've got stretched like taffy, and there are things thrown in almost for the sake of throwing them in that you lose the heart of it a bit, I think. Um, you know, with Rings, you know, there was never a lack of story. Whatever your take on Tolkien is, he gives you story. You know, this sure. story and then story and then story. And, and one of the marvels of Lord of the Rings, and it's a much better book than The Hobbit. It's the other thing people don't remember, you know, tend to forget. It's a much, much better book. The characters are better. The visuals are better. He just throws in these set pieces, Tolkien. He's, he's, he's a great in Hollywood, Tolkien. He writes right. a set piece. You know, Moria, you know, everyone remembers. You know, Shelob's lair. He just throws that in late in the story. You know, giant spider in, in this lair. And you think, gosh, yeah, he, you know, he's good at this stuff. And I think that's part of it. The Hobbit just didn't have as much good stuff in it. Yeah, it's, it's like, as you say, it's a children's story. It's very episodic. It's very, you know, it, I mean, it's called there and back again. You know, it's like, that's that's the, the structure and everything. Yeah. But I mean, the problem with that idea of, oh, well, we can't tell this and we can't tell this, but if we have a third film, we'll be able to do, but that's not a film. A film yeah, yeah, yeah. is not like a bunch of cool scenes. It's, it should be. And I, I mean, I think it was, that, that was the thing that got me, um, that I ended up sort of like uh, huffing and puffing about when I was watching it was there was something that diluted about the epic that all that I remember um, hearing Jackson in an interview probably on one of the extended editions where he's actually talking about everybody talks about it's a battle between good and evil but that's not actually very interesting I'm interested in the hobbits um, and I thought I think that's where Hobbit the Hobbit ironically kind of lost the plot because it became this huge Thing about good and evil and it lost sight of the fact that well, that's not that interesting it's 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 the hobbits that are more interesting. yeah yeah and of course the resonance with, with the hobbits is is tolkien and world war one and the song right. that essentially that their little englishman going off to world war one that that's kind of the, the the underlying idea in it and they're forever changed when they return they, and to such an extent that they can't even stay settled it's true and I thought there were opportunities in The Hobbit. Maybe they could have... I think the dragon's a great character, and he does him, it does him well. And that sequence works for me. But I thought that needs to be the crescendo, almost. You know, the Battle of Five Armies is actually a bit of an afterthought. In fact, in the book, it doesn't really happen at all. Bilbo gets knocked out, and he wakes up, and the battle's virtually done. 
and of course they couldn't quite do that but um i just thought as soon as you you've done the dragon everything after that's a bit of a you know it's the party's over and we're just kind of dribbling on to the end yeah. <laughs> the battle of the five armies is like someone turning up and saying okay who wants coffee <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the hoover out going, come on everybody go home now it did it gets it gets trapped in that and, and i think jackson would acknowledge that uh, that you know, there are good passages in it and good bits of filmmaking and you know I, armitage is good mckellen never never lets you down uh, and um you know on some levels it, it, it's okay it's just a mediocre fantasy trilogy that right right the, the, the comparison with rings is it's great sort of yoke it has to has to carry this kind of oscar-winning trilogy that was kind of vaunted by even you know the most cynical critics to you know, a middle order studio fantasy film set for Christmas. Yeah. And that felt yeah. like a come down. And but I think in his heart, maybe Jackson didn't want to do it. And um, I mean, I'd be very interested to have seen Del Toro's version. I've seen some of the artwork mm. uh, and it's very clockworky. It's very Hellboy. He <laughs> was going to I mean, stick to the same universe, but I think he was going to bring his own complexion to it. He was going to do far less. He was going to build a lot of the special effects as he likes to do. A lot of the creatures were going to be done in, you know, in situ. And Jackson got very used to Weta Digital kind of doing that for him. Right. Um, you know, people talked talk about the fact they weren't doing bigotures anymore in The Hobbit. They did digital, you know, buildings. Yeah. Which, which may, may help, may give you more flexibility on some level, but you lose that kind of tangibility of, of things being there. Yeah, I remember him talking up the frame rate as well as this big oh, sort yes. of thing. And it was just like, I think it was like a voice of one. And the more I listened to him t talk about it, the more I was thinking, are you trying to convince yourself or are you trying to convince me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not... yeah, that that was a, another experiment that mm. and I admire. You know, he, he's he's a very technical guy on, on, on some levels, Jackson. Yeah, he began, as you know, we talked about, you know, making special effects for Wurzel Gummidge. And uh, Wurzel Gummidge in Australia, where they're filming in New Zealand. Uh, Wurzel Gummidge mm. Down Under, I think it was called. And he built an exploding doll. You know, just for your 70s children's reference there. And <laughs> We've got to have one every single uh, every Got to have episode. one. Uh, yeah, and, and he, you know, he was building things in his basement models. And he, that's where he came up through. So he is technically minded. And I think through the success of Rings and that West Digital becoming, you know, as good as ILM, basically, as important as ILM. I think there was a certain sense that he had to see what the future was I mean, Cameron thinks like this as well that right yeah and George Lucas yeah I've got to map out a future for movies because you know th this isn't going to go on forever people are going to get bored and you can see you know things coming around the corner you know you couldn't see the COVID thing coming around the corner but he obviously understood that cinema needs to reinvent himself so again I think he goes into things very honestly and thought well this frame rate is interesting we, you know, we can get rid of motion blur and we can all that problem is it yeah you lose, lose texture the grain is important to people and especially mm. it's really important to middle earth because it gives it a sense of myth and, and time and, and those things once you, you're peering through whatever it was 48 frames per second and you see like you, you're looking onto the set basically you can see the scene <laughs> down the back of gandalf's hat and you're like there's too much detail here but um i think again i i, I, I he's not a cynical guy jackson mm. and um yeah, I don't think all decisions were correct, but I think he thought well, this is a chance to elevate, you know, using the technology to elevate the world, and it, it didn't work. I mean, I, 
I think I saw two of them though, eh? Yeah, what about um, his sort of post, uh, post-Hobbit work, really? I mean, he's sort of gone into documentaries and we've got, we're looking forward to, I'm, I'm very much yeah. looking forward to the Beatles documentary about to come out. And he did the First World War documentary yeah. uh, as well. Um, Tintin disappeared, I think, and I haven't heard of that since. Uh... Yeah, well, Tintin was obviously he, Spielberg directed and, and Jackson produced and Weta did all, all the special effects. Uh, it didn't do quite as well as they'd have. I think it did all right. Mm. Um, but I think it did. And I don't think Spielberg particularly enjoyed the whole motion capture you know, process. Spielberg's mm. a guy who's quite traditional in his, his filmmaking methods. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to go away and, and shoot people on sets and, and do the traditional thing. He's not as much as a, a tech, you know, technocrat as, as Jackson is. And I spoke a couple of times. I spoke to Jackson. You know, are you going to do the Tintin sequel? And he goes, Yeah, it's it's on the list. It's whatever wherever this list existed, it, it was on it. But then he goes, But it's up to the studios. It's, it's not my call. You know, I'll do it. I want to do it. And he wants to do Prisoners of the Sun. He wants to do that story. Um, and I, I think the studio, it was sort of Sony and DreamWorks together, the co-production, didn't think it was worthwhile. Um, mm. Or the time frame didn't work out. You know, it was going to be Jackson directing the second one with Spielberg producing. And I think I don't know whether they both got distracted with other things, or simply the the deal didn't work out, or everybody quietly thought, well, one Tintin movie kind of did it, and people weren't swept away, and we'll move on to other stuff. Yeah, uh, nobody's clamoring for the for the. No, there wasn't really. that that feeling. I, I should watch it again. That film. I haven't seen it for a long time, and I remember quite liking it. Is it Tintin or not? This is the thing, isn't it? Everyone, I mean, there's Tolkien and then there's Tintin. You can't t- tamper with these worlds. And he kind of got Tolkien right, but Tintin was was difficult. Yeah, I, I don't, it was that CGI thing of it never really, I didn't, didn't ever really feel that it sort of invented its world and it got its look absolutely right. I thought, you know, there was great, there were great moments and I loved the chase towards the end. I thought that was superb, yeah. you know, that was just... But you get you you're almost guaranteed to get something like that in any Spielberg film. You know, there's always going to be that good moment, or for that matter, any Peter Jackson film. You know, I love yeah. the the barrels chase in the in the Hobbit, for instance, as much as you know, the rest of the film doesn't necessarily hold up. It's it does go stuff. I suppose you know, there's there's a kind of a, an atmosphere in in the Hergé books, however you call them, graphic novels, or what you want to describe them as. That's impossible to, to put onto the screen. It, mm. It's about the drawings he did and, and, and the way he, he portrayed his world that I think may be unadaptable mm. in that sort of pure sense of, of what Hergé gave us. So any version of Tintin is, is going to be slightly perverted, you know, slightly spoiled. And, and I thought he got a lot of things right. But the problem with Tintin is that, and it's what makes the, the, the comics so great, is that Tintin himself is a blank. You know, he's a cipher. Mm. In fact, you're not even sure what job he has. Is he an adventurer? Is he a reporter? Is he an investigator? What is he? But he's there to the audience project onto. But that doesn't quite work on film. You've got to create a character out of him. And all the people around him are eccentric and and very rich characters. But Tintin is is a blank. And I don't think they found a a Tintin. It was Jamie Bell, wasn't it, who who did the the motion capture and the voice. But... uh, he didn't feel like Tintin to me. And I suppose that's that's a very possible job. What do you think? Uh, do you know what um, Jackson's working on now? I mean, because of you know, the, he's releasing the 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 documentary on Disney, I think. And 
yeah what do you have any idea of what what you might have lined up uh, last time I, I was out, it was 2018. And yeah, and obviously we've had a huge world changing events in between. And he was, he was really getting into the Beatles thing back then. That was the thing on his mind. We were talking about, that's, we're doing a sort of anniversary interview. But, and so we did a bit of the, the old stuff, rings and things, but he wanted to talk about the Beatles because that's where his head was. And he's, I mean, he's a passionate, passionate Beatles fan, absolutely obsessive Beatles fan. And he just wanted to, you know, you've got to watch this stuff. You, you know, this is going to completely revise your opinion of what was going on with the band at the time. And John is funny and he's having a great time. He's not a pain at all. And it's just these young guys making music together in a way you've never seen. And he watched all 54 hours of footage. You know, he went through it all. Um, and I, I thought this guy's absolutely delighted to be in the element he's in. Um, uh, yeah, it's that thing with directors at a certain point they just want control you know everything has been so hard and directing mm. is really hard and when you're doing films of the scale that jackson was doing it must be absolutely exhausting and i think he just got to the point where he could do these documentaries where he's absolute control the footage already exists you know it's, it's pre-existing and now he just to go into an edit suite and get wetter to do the colorization and bring it all to life and work on the soundtracks and you can call Paul McCartney and, and get his stories <laughs> and do all that and, and bring it to life. I thought he's in his element. And I said, you, you know, is there a feature film cooking away in the back burner? And he said, well, there are things and, you know, I don't know, I may move. And I did, I spoke to Philippa Boyens at the same time. She's always very honest, Philippa Boyens. She lives mm. literally next door to Jackson. They live right. next door to each other, right by the waterside. It's very beautiful. And she said, I, he will. She said, you know, uh, he, he's, in this documentary place at the moment but you know, there are projects and they might be small he might do a new zealand film um, something like heavenly creatures that would be really interesting that'd be a really interesting that's sort of like i mean it's george lucas sort of made it into something of a cliche because he was constantly talking about wanting to do these small experimental yeah. films and it's, it's just, just like to his early days yeah george you you've had so you mean you could finance them yourself you know you don't even need a studio or anything you could just put a few million together and i know shoot them i mean so after a while you just sort of think okay you're just talking nonsense then you just don't want to do anything you know but i mean with jackson yeah. i i feel that i i feel that he's he, he you know because of his background i really do feel he could get back and do a, a, a 90 minute blumhouse horror type movie uh, i, I keep encouraging i kept saying do but you know if you can't think of anything else just do bad taste too just go back. <laughs> there are scripts of bad taste too somewhere, and just do it. You know, whatever level you want to do it. Yeah, you know? and he, you know, he laughs. He goes, "Yeah, we'll do bad taste too." That's good. Yeah. I thought that's the kind of thing I think people might enjoy. Make it for thirty million. Because obviously, it's going to cost a lot more than the original because it always does, but not at a level where there's, there's huge amounts of pressure. And I think you can just have a ball with it. You know, out in space, you can star in it, and it just be absolutely <laughs> mad and ridiculously gory and over the top. That's a way of almost exercising all the past, and, you know, Oscars and Hobbit and all the things that have gone on. So, go, this is who I am. Go back to the beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the Meet the Freebles and the, what was the <laughs> other one that he did? The one with the lawnmower? Oh, um, ba- a brain dead. Brain dead. God, I love that film. That's so good. The Kung Fu Priest and the... Oh, it's, yeah, it's just the scene with the, you know, he goes in at the end of the lawnmower. And the stories of the making of that, they had to use food colouring and they had vats of blood. 
Yeah. Every item of clothing, him and Richard Taylor, every item of clothing they owned was covered in red food colouring and they smelt of the film. They couldn't oh. wash it off for weeks. Oh, and, and Richard Taylor goes, yeah, I look back and think, these are the best days of my life, you know, just making that that kind of, I mean, hands-on doesn't even get the way, it's just absolutely... Uh, into your elbows, yeah. <laughs> up to your elbows in it. And yeah, no, I, I look forward to, I look forward to, to sort of a return to that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, Cause you know, I mean, he's a, he's a great filmmaker. I, I watched Bad Taste when I was a kid. Uh, well, I was a kid when I was in my teens, I guess, yeah. uh, on a, on a dodgy VHS and uh, you know, heavenly creatures impressed me i remember it coming out and being really into it and it was yeah it, and, and going through those the lord of the rings was was a wonderful journey to have and kind of an imp i felt it was an impossible one i mean like when i was a kid i i was either reading lord of the rings or dune for like right. seven years you know i was i was just alternate yeah. from one to the other maybe try to read the silmarillion at some point <laughs> so, it's very hard to do yes oh god it's so difficult that book <laughs> which is a load of papers he wrote and he sort of threw together and they were edited it's, it's, it's not really a story rather than sort of a history book it's, yeah yeah and I think, I think they're glad they didn't really get into that but what do you yeah. think of the, the idea of the amazon series which is uh which, which there's the slightly disturbing rumors coming out of that i feel it's, it's hard to assess really um you know first yeah i i was you know, it's like the football team you support. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Jackson's boy, home and away. So I, I can't, you know, that's that. Always this new opposition that's come over the horizon. It ain't my Lord of the Rings. It ain't my Middle Earth because here's my guy, but he's away, you know, talking to Ringo Starr. So he doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I have a kind of, you know, my Empire days have always taught me that, you know, try and think positively first. And, and there's a lot of money going in. And I think a lot of hope and, and, and care. It feels very big to me, and I'm not sure exactly what story they're telling. Is it, you know, because they're not doing the Silmarillion, and they're not obviously doing the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. They're doing sort of a bit of the appendices and extrapolating outwards. And it, it seems like there's a lot of work to be done in in doing Ursat's Tolkien, you know, or doing mm. you know ex, an extended version of Tolkien that isn't actually him. Um, to that concerns me I, I can't i don't quite understand who the characters are and and you know, as soon as you say middle earth you know the the kind of the things that i feel you've got to have you've got to have i mean you've got to have funny hobbits and, and wizards what are the things everyone you know if you've not read a word of tolkien on the page but you love those movies and amazon has sunk you know millions and millions into these series they want the biggest audience possible so they're sure they've got to sell them on the thing they get they go okay where's those quirky hobbit guys and Where's the old wizards and where's the golem guy? And they'll just want more of the same or versions of the same. But by the sounds of it, it's much more sort of austere and, and ornate in the elven histories. And it's a bit more Game of Thrones. I was going to say, that's the, yeah. that's the other thing that, they, that Lord of the Rings didn't have to deal with. Like, you know, uh, Game, of the, Game of Thrones really sort of medievalized and historicized the fantasy genre in a way that... I wonder how you would make if if Peter Jackson never made Lord of the Rings and and he was starting now, you have to contend with Game of Thrones. You can't ignore it. Well, first of all, they would do a TV series of Rings. Right. They would look at the length and and probably break it down into three seasons or six seasons and do sort of 
I mean, I don't know whether Jackson would do that because he's a, he's a cinematic guy, but I would imagine that's how you, you would go about it if you were to do Lord of the Rings now. Um, but yeah, I think in a post Game of Thrones universe, it would be hard to be so playful mm. in the way that Jackson is. In and in the din- there is a, quite a big difference between Rings and Game of Thrones. Although Game of Thrones obviously was very inspired by what Jackson had achieved, and you know, the very presence of Sean Bean tells you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the way it sort of mounted battle scenes and sort of dealt with its fantasy elements in Game of Thrones owes a great debt, I think, to, to Lord of the Rings and the way Jackson got hold of all that. Um, but, I, it, you know, Lord of the Rings is more playful and the characters mm. are more innocent. There's no sex in it. Mm. And the violence is sort of meted out on the, the evil guys more than the good guys. And there are, there are deaths, but there's no great shock twist in, in that sense. Mm. Um, so I don't mm. know what, what would Lord of the Rings look like now, post-Game of Thrones. There probably would be a temptation to ramp it up a bit. Mm. And that was a t- what's interesting is that you know, I read all the, the, the early drafts for Lord of the Rings, you know, the two-film draft and various versions of the three-film draft. They still got everything. I mean, Jackson keeps everything. And what was interesting is the, the kind of trajectory of their storytelling went from we need to do something with Tolkien to make him more cinematic. We need to make him grow up a bit. Let's put Arwen, you know, the Liv Tyler character, more front and center. Let's send her into battle. And they've shot stuff with her in battle. Right, yeah, and Liv Tyler in, in Helm's yeah. Deep. She was in Helm's Deep, right. and there was a whole journey she makes across Rohan to get there that involved the children. It was sort of, they eventually, the children, you know, those two kids who make their way in off the raids on, on the, the villages. That was all in Arwen storyline that then got cut because as they went along, they kept gravitating back to the book. It's kind of, however they argued, they went, well, you know, in the end, Tolkien sort of solves the problem for us. You know, there, 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 there. It's moving people around the damn map was very difficult. You know. mm, there, mm. there, how do you, where do you put them? And they sort of said, well, I should see what it says in the book. The book was, oh, okay. If we just keep Arwen there, it solves 80 problems we've made for ourselves. But they had all these kind of scenes of Arwen saving Frodo on battlements and, you know, much more frothy battle stuff. That would have been maybe a bit more Game of Thrones-like. It wouldn't have been as, as I say, as grown up and, and sexy as Game of Thrones. But there was a, a, a movement within the production to, to not sensationalise Tolkien and to, to have faith with the book. Um, and that seemed to work for them. Yeah, yeah, I'm, it's I've got such an urge to rewatch them now. What do you think? Which which version should I rewatch? Should I rewatch the cinema versions or the extended versions? I, I like. I suppose most people I, I, they blur in my head now about which yeah. what's in what and what's what's in the other. I like the extended versions more because you get stuff I like, and mm. I think it, I certainly um I think Two Towers theatricals struggled a bit with its cut. And the extended edition is really good. It solves its problems, the extended edition of Two Towers. It brings in things and stretches out and it becomes a much more satisfying film. And you get things like in, in the extended edition of Return of the King, you get the death of Saruman. Mm. For, you know, with the, that kind of completes an arc in the story that's, that feels important. So, but also you get, you know, Viggo Monson singing and <laughs> you get more of that kind of stuff. But I stick. I tend to to want to watch the extended editions because uh, at home you can can relax into them, and, <laughs> and there are just little notes and, and textured things that that feel better. Um, mm. But I haven't watched the theatrical cuts for a long time, so 
it'd be interesting to remember what was in those because it's like the the um the gift giving sequence you know galadriel and which is such an important part of the books it's it kind of it sort of signifies all the characters and their destinies mm. and they cut that out of the theatrical version of fellowship mm. and i was quite shocked at the time like, well, where's the gift giving this is a, a moment i was waiting for and it's it kind of feels right that it's in there in the extended edition and it makes sense and there's various sort of plot points that it, it feeds that i think are important but um, yeah fighting yeah. with new line for over time new... yeah i think i i think i prefer i definitely prefer the the first the fellowship of the ring i think the theatrical version is just so the pace is just so good and i and that that drives me and i it, it's like that thing of um, be careful what you wish for so for instance when orlando bloom's zapping all the orcs with his amazing bow work in the extended version it's just like maybe three kills longer than the, <laughs> and it's just like eh, it doesn't have the same impact you know it, it, yeah, it yeah. should be more impressive but it's actually at, at a certain point you start thinking okay this is this is a digital thing or this is you know it, it, it's on the screen a little bit too long you know yeah yeah i, I get that um but i think there is a difference when you watch at home and you watch in the cinema sure and you know you can just pause it and go to the loo and come back and it's <laughs> it's all fine or go make yourself a coffee or you get some kendall mint cake or whatever you need to get to the end of this thing and um i, I mean i saw yeah, it's one of the great privileges of, of doing it. When I went out to New Zealand and to see they were doing supplementary on, on Two Towers, they showed us the extended cut of Fellowship in Jackson's cinema. Wow. And we sat with the cast. You know, they, the cast had never seen it. And it's hilarious. I mean, they made so much noise. It was a bit irritating. You know, Bern, <laughs> Bernard Hill and I think Vigo Mortensen was sat behind me um, where I was sitting. And then just over to the right were Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan. Right. There was this kind of dialogue going between Bernard Hill and the two hobbits. He was just sort of taking the mickey out of them. <laughs> and it was obviously it was great because it was who they were and the, the kind of repartee. But you want to go, shh, I'm watching the film. For fuck's yeah. sake, Bernard Hill. You know, just shut up for a minute. It's like you, want, you want to watch it twice. You want to watch it so you can enjoy it. And then you yeah. can watch it with the DVD commentary of Bernard Hill shouting at hobbits. <laughs> so Philip Boyens tells a story that um, Jackson, when Del Toro was, was going to do The Hobbit, that Jackson brought him over and they came to New Zealand. They watched the Lord of the Rings films again on the big screen with just him, Del Toro and, and Jackson. Fran Walsh and Philip Boyne just sat several rows back. And Fran Walsh and Philip Boyne just took the mickey out of their own film so consistently, Jackson sent them out. Just, <laughs> just laughing. It's just like, what? And they were, it's such a New Zealand thing. What, what did we do there? What were we thinking? Look at that scene. They were just mocking themselves. That's so Laughing funny. hysterically. And Jackson said, look, this is not helpful. Can you please? <laughs> Poor old. We're supposed to be selling this. Yeah, we're well, going to bring him in and get him as part of the team. And you what laughing at what a bunch of losers. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Well, listen, Ian, thanks so much for for uh, you know stopping by to chat chat some some Ridley and some uh, and some Tolkien. It's been and some Jackson, obviously. It's been uh, it's been great. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk. It's, yeah. it's a great series you've got going on. It feels like it's sort of, you know, really becoming something. And yeah, it's encouraging people to read. Yeah. yeah. Read film. It, it sounds that's, obvious, but it's it's a really good thing to be doing. And, that's that's the best thing. Loads of people, uh, someone on Twitter today just tweeted, like, uh, they just, uh, Jason Bailey's book about New York has just arrived, Fun City Cinema. And, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I've wanted to re read this since I heard the podcast. And you just think... Ah, brilliant that's you know that's yeah, my yeah. that's my that's, job that's, done you know? yeah, yeah absolutely and 
and he was getting great people. Yeah, the, the list of people, uh, Judy Salomon, that's a great get, you know. She's yeah. anyone who's written a film book, Devil's Candy is one of the kind of the sacred texts, it's kind of where you start. And it's interesting, again, it, it was a light final cut, it was a little bit of an inspiration for me looking at it. For how do you write these books over the long haul? Except, obviously, you know, Bonfire of the Vanities went horribly wrong. <laughs> there was no model of you know how you, you know, how a success story of a film, you know, they didn't publish books about successes, you only publish books about disasters. So I, I think I'm one of the few books out there about a triumph. <laughs> but that was, yeah, but I I, th I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed it as such a, it's so good to read it at a distance as well. I really felt that that, um, just having that perspective on it, because even when your book came out, you're saying, you know, it's after The Hobbit and everything. So there's even a sense that um, it's, it's almost a nostalgia. I'm, I'm beginning yeah. to get nostalgia. I mean, it's as you say, it's like 20, 20 years, years ago. So it's like a frightening. I, I've got photos of me on, on set that have been sort of taken. I look like a boy. Yeah, like, yeah, no, I saw them in, boys. The, middle of, yeah. in yeah. the middle of the book. The, Honestly. It, 16 colour illustrations. <laughs> yeah, the professional, hard, hardcore journalist at work having the elf ears put on. Yeah. <laughs> With the helmet and the sword and stuff. Oh, yeah, honestly. It was, <laughs> but it was, it, we encouraged it. It's these terrible New Zealanders. Yeah. Come and sit in the throne. Sit down. You're like, yeah. no, I'm meant to be on the job. Oh, this yeah. is great. I've come out of the theme park. It's like glowing with absolute. I remember yeah. doing. I remember doing the same thing with. Uh, uh, we went to. We saw Solo at uh, Cannes, and yeah. we, we went to the party afterwards. And they had these cutouts of the Millennium Falcon, and you could sit in. And uh, <laughs> me and another journalist were doing some sort of like slightly rude poses and, so, and such. And I've still got those photographs. But despite the irony, you can't. You can see it. Still see a sort of fanboy gleam in my eye. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's terrible. You, you yeah. want to be professional at all times, and then they they kind of they seduce you with their but, wonders. But you also need to hold on to the magic, to the reason yes. we do this in the first place. Because if you lose that uh, th that cod professionalism, I think is a poor excuse, a poor replacement. And the only thing, what yeah, only thing I hoped I achieved was the sense of wonder I had that would have been shared by you know any of the people reading the book, but. If they had experienced, they would experience it in a similar way to me, just how extraordinary it all was. I mean, I, you know, I, I, the memories are just fantastic. I, I have a great memory, and I think I put it in the book, of queuing up for, for catering. And there were two queues on both sides of the table. And Christopher Lee was directly opposite me in full <laughs> Saruman makeup. You know, the, the talons, the whole business. The beard was tied up in the neck. And between this is a bowl, it was, I think it's, it was chilly steaming away and he looks up at me dead in the eye and goes what is that and i am like i think it's chili and he sort of looks at all oh, chili chili so rubs his stomach and goes i better not onset this afternoon onset <laughs> and off he goes I think, i've just had an interaction with with christopher Lee. then it dawned on me he thought i was catering he just thought i was <laughs> <a> catering <laughs> You were thinking, like, oh, maybe you recognised me from the pages of Empire. Yeah, it's like, I have this moment, me and Christopher Lee, the great Christopher Lee. I thought, fucking catering. Then I just made me laugh. I thought, this is the wonder of being here. This is the joy of it all. Yeah. Where you else would that happen? Just pop a napkin over your arm and go and see if he needs anything. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, wonderful stories. Wonderful stories. <laughs> well, well let's, let's do this again, Ian. We'll just... Uh, Absolutely. 
we'll wait for uh, another couple of uh, a couple of months, a few films to come out, and um, it'd be uh, yeah, yeah, totally. We'll, we'll we'll catch up post Christmas, and you know, see what we've been reading, what we've been watching. So that was me and Ian talking about uh, Ridley Scott, or Ian and I, I should say, talking about Ridley Scott, talking about The Last Duel, talking about um, Tolkien and Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Tintin, uh, and Peter Jackson's documentary. So a whole bunch of stuff, really. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'd like to thank Elliot Atkins for the music and Ali Howard for the art. And until the next episode, please take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.